Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Matthew Jordan, and I am an instructor at McMaster University and a director of the Interact Fellowship. Today, I'm very excited to be speaking with Lee Vinsel and Andrew Russell about their new book, The Innovation Delusion, How Our Obsession with the New Has Disrupted the Work That Matters Most. Lee is a professor in the Department of Science, Technology, and Society at Virginia Tech, Andrew Russell is a professor of history and the dean of the College of Arts and Sciences at SUNY Polytechnic Institute. This book is um, an argument against the idea that innovation is everything, and in particular against the idea of innovation speak, the language that we use to describe the new and the flashy, often to the neglect or ignoring the important work of maintenance. We're going to talk about what innovation is and isn't, and in particular, we're going to speak a lot about maintenance today. So Lee and Andrew, thank you so much for speaking speaking with me about the book today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. I'd love if you could just start um, maybe by talking about some of the words. We the main two words that I think come in, come up in this book are innovation and maintenance. Um, I'm wondering if you could just start by defining what those words mean to you. Go for it, Andy. Sure. Great question um, to get us all on the same foot because. Um, Innovation in particular is one of these words that has a little bit of uh, dogma around it, so it's nice to get to brass tacks. Um, innovation, we follow a traditional definition um, found in Joseph Schumpeter's work um, that distinguishes innovation from invention. Um, invention as a, as a singular act, innovation as a process of bringing new ideas into fruition. Um, it almost always is um, signified by profit. So there's a a commercial context always with innovation. Um, And it's not always a product. Sometimes it's a process or a way of doing things. Um, And again, that's following Schumpeter's definition. So we're Schumpeterians in that sense. Um, Maintenance is um, the preservation of existing order. Very simple definition from the dictionary. Again, (laughs) nothing fancy here from us. So... um, those are the two terms. Those are the two definitions. And would you say that they are um, in contrast with each other? Is Do they butt heads ever? Is there a tension at play between innovation and maintenance? Or can we have the new and flashy, I suppose, at the same time as preserving the existing order? They're not necessarily in conflict. Um You know, if you introduce a new thing, say in an automotive system, it might make maintenance worse or harder or damage maintenance in some ways. But there's, on the other hand, there's there's also innovation in maintenance. So if we look at maintenance practices in industry over the last 100 and 150 years, we can tell many stories 
about innovation and maintenance, including, you know, that the idea of deferred maintenance was created at some point in the 1920s. Um, where we do see tension, we argue in the book, is that we also create a distinction between what we call actual innovation, which is what Andy talked about, the process of introducing new things and often making profits from them, and what we call innovation speak, which is the way that we've come to talk and think about uh, technological change and business change in our culture over the last 50 or 60 years. And we argue that innovation speak is it's unrealistic, that it's become an obsession and leads us to into trouble. And that one of the things that innovation speak does is it distracts us from other essential realities in, in our world, including uh, maintenance and repair and, and just keeping things going. I really loved your introduction to the concept of innovation speak. If I could just read uh, a section from the book directly, this really gave me a giggle. Um, you you talk about innovation speak and you give some examples, uh, disruptive innovation, social innovation, impact innovation, um, change agent, thought leader, disruption, angel investor, entrepreneurship, design thinking, ideation, STEM education, unicorn incubator, startup, regional investment hub, innovation ecosystem, innovation district. Um Oh, a company is described as agile and lean. This is a good example. I mean, this is terminology that will be familiar to anyone in the uh, business or digital technology world or the world of Silicon Valley. Um, this terminology, this innovation speak, uh, you make the argument that this innovation speak is new and was not always present in the history of innovation. Um you even make the further argument that it's possible that this language of innovation actually came into effect when actual innovation, actual new productive technologies was on the decline. Could you expand a bit more about how this language became so prominent and how it tracks with the actual progress in technological development? Mm. Yeah, I mean, part of the argument here, we, we you know, we, if you do, if you, if your listeners would do like a Google ngram, so it's a freely available tool on the internet. It's ngram, and just put in innovation. Um, what you see is the word innovation coming up after in the post World War II period. There's there's um, there's steep curves in the 60s and 90s when it's especially going up. Uh, but now that ngram used to cut off at 2008, now that it goes up to uh, 2019, we can see that uh, it continues all the way up to the present. It just keeps going up and up. We're talking about innovation more and more. And the reason, one reason why we're, why economists and policymakers and others kind of discovered innovation, if we want to put it that way, is that in the late 50s and early 60s, economists were trying to figure out what, what was creating economic growth. Um, and you know what they ended up hypothesizing is that it was it was technological change or what came became known as innovation that was creating growth basically well now economists have argued you know like uh, robert gordon and some others have argued that you know really deep innovation that affects productivity and output and all these things has like flattened uh, or even maybe even slowed down since about 1970. And it's yet it's after 1970 um, that we really see innovation speak take off in whole new ways um, and become so central to our culture. So, I mean, there's a tension and an irony there that maybe there's less innovation going on, but we're talking about innovation more and more. So, you know, 
on, on, just on, on one level, what we want to say is like, there's no evidence that all this talking about innovation is actually getting us more innovation. Right. One, one feels like it would be unlikely to think of the Wright brothers discussing disrupting the travel industry. Um, <laughs> yeah. And, and they probably just focused on building, right? Yeah. And that's kind of an argument that you make as well, is that maybe the thing that would actually most spur innovation is just people genuinely doing their work, becoming experts in particular domains and doing, you know, building and engineering as, we, as we've always known it, instead of focusing on, you know, kind of the, the incubators or the innovation design thinking or these other kind of programs that have uh, sprung up. And it's also something that I've heard uh, from a number of economists. I think, I forget who, but proposed a thought experiment where you kind of look at your kitchen and go, okay, what in here was invented after 1970? And you look around and you see the fridge and the oven and, I don't know, the laundry machine and the dishwasher and the shelving units and the the cooling, you know, thing and the microwave. The microwave was probably the last thing to be invented, the toaster oven. And everything, you know, probably was, was built uh, or, or at least conceptually invented before the 1970s. Yeah. We've obviously had, uh, you know, improvements, but I guess that kind of is one intuitive way of seeing of seeing how maybe it's possible that innovation has slowed down since mm-hmm. uh, since the 1970s. Yeah, I mean what you describe is is right and I think a lot of economists and certainly working professionals would recognize this as as the incremental approach to innovation uh, which is where the real action happens uh, when we're talking about um, actual innovation. And, and the buzzwords that you that you rattled off before, and, and so much more, you know, that's an edited, pr- pretty concise list, um, right, I think right. is the consequence of, of people just trying to force it. You know, it's, it's in this sense, it's a typical um, case of a business buzzword, um, where people when they know that money's at stake are gonna um, try and fake it until they make it and um, and so the, the obvious outcome is just going to be a, a lot of sloppy thinking sloppy language and um, and then it then it moves into some funny directions um, like fear is one thing that we point out in the book mm-hmm. so instead of you know people instead of the innovation experts looking at incrementalism as you described, um, they try and just scare people into buying their um, buying whatever it is they're selling by saying, you know, only the paranoid survive, like Andy Grove's um, book, or or you know, you're not keeping up, or China's beating us in the race for AI, whatever it is. Um, so they'll resort to this, you know, language of uh, negativity um, that I think exposes the the underlying uh, fragility. Well, uh, yeah, I was just. Um I mean, I, I totally agree with what Andy was just saying. I, I actually was your your whole kitchen example. Um, I thought was great, and I think that the it also gets at the tension between innovation and and maintenance because you know what we've done with our fridges and toasters and everything now is we've made them smart. You know, we've made our um, our coffee pots Wi Fi connected. Uh, and, and what, what, when we talk to, uh, appliance repair people, what we've heard is that actually here's, here's a place where innovation has undercut maintenance because fridges, old fridges would last like decades. Hmm. But now what we've introduced is like ice makers and all these gadgets. And those are the first thing to go. 
Like, you know, appliance repair people are often just going around and repairing the kind of newfangled things that we've we've put on our appliances um, that really haven't, you know, I'm, I'm not saying I don't like a good ice maker. You know, I, I like all these things. Uh, I like fancy coffee makers, but we just, you know, there's a real tension there between kind of like change just to have something new that appeals to consumers and, uh, you know, and kind of deeper uh change and and how those you know superficial changes can actually undermine sustainability and repair and all these these things right one thing that i think that your book did a really phenomenal job of uh of expressing is the um the difference between uh, tech as we've come to understand it as a very limited thing digital technology the iphone um i don't know netflix facebook People often use the word tech to refer to that kind of stuff. I don't know, Amazon Echo. But technology as a concept is far, far broader than that very narrow conception. You you have an amazing kind of thought experiment where you ask people uh, reading the book, and maybe they can do that listening to this right now, to look around in the building that they're in or the house that they're in or the street that they're walking on and notice the the pavement or the scaffolding or the windows or the drywall or concrete, and then maybe some smaller devices, their laptop or iPhone or whatever. And think, you know, which which of these would you rather live without the 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 concrete foundation or the uh, smart toaster, right? Um, so you 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 brilliantly make this point that what we what we understand to be technology is far broader than just this narrow conception of tech. I'm wondering if you could just speak about, yeah, that that misconception. How do you think about what technology means, and why have we been kind of blinded into not recognizing just how vast the space of technology really is? You know, this this might be um, a place where where public conceptions and and ideas in the academy have have diverged so far that we're seeing actual real confusion come come out of it. So Lee and I are both historians of technology, um, and the whole book is informed by um, our training in the history of technology. Um, from the systems approach to Thomas Hughes and um, technological systems in the home from Ruth Schwartz-Cowan to David Edgerton's work on um, everyday technologies. And so I I think what we're seeing when people refer to tech um, in popular media or or whatever it might be, it's ignorance. Um, manifest as shorthand. Um, Because as your example points out, as we say in the book, technology is actually, is not just a digital thing. Technology is all the things that humans use to to better their existence or to make their existence palatable. And this includes material things and includes non-material things. And it's, uh, I think, an indication of how impoverished our conceptual categories are uh, right now, that when people think about when people hear the words technology or innovation, they just think of an iPhone. Um, when you know, you could think about all the examples you mentioned, from concrete um, to steel to glass, uh, or or uh, different forms of organization, like the hospital mm-hmm. is a technology or the factory is a mm-hmm. technology um, that so overwhelm the trite uh, digital devices that uh, mm-hmm. obsess so many people. So, uh, but it really comes from our our strong background in in the history of technology. 
yeah, those are those are excellent examples. I mean, it's it's I I think part of it as well, and and maybe you'll uh, agree or disagree with this. This is my intuition, is that w- we are so used to so many of the technologies you named, the hospital and the factory and steel and concrete and the the the, the structures that keep our homes intact, just feel like. The state of nature almost to a person born in a wealthy country in the 21st century. This just feels like how life is. But I think that maybe what we don't recognize is that all of these things were innovations. They developed not in a flash of brilliance, but often gradually over the course of years or decades of centuries and have been able to provide us with the, you know, kind of quality of life that that so many of us enjoy and that so many of us strive to have. Um, whereas tech, so to speak, by virtue of always being innovative or, or d- d- bathed in innovation speak, always must be new, uh, is always kind of the hottest new thing. So it's much easier to understand it as as a novelty, whereas everything else, it feels to many of us just like it's baked into part of our society. And what I love about uh, this, you're pointing out of the importance of the maintainers of the role of maintenance, is that it's not just part of the status quo. It requires a uh, constant upkeep um, and that we really, many of us are not paying attention to that. Does that idea resonate? Yeah, that sounds exactly right. Wonderful. I'm, well, I'm glad I, my understanding of the of the argument is sound. Um, I guess this is a time where we can turn to this idea of maintenance. Um, you, This book project, as I understand it, came from uh, an almost tongue-in-cheek um, project to talk about people called maintainers. Can you say a little bit about the origins of this, uh, of this research? Yeah. So it started as a joke. Um, uh, Walter, about six years ago now, uh, Walter Isaacson's book, the innovators, how hackers, a group of hackers, geniuses, and geeks created the digital revolution came out. And as professional historians, we were annoyed by various uh, parts of it. Uh, but I think that really the the thing that stuck out was just the focus on everything we've been talking about on the shiny and new um, and, and kind of in neglecting the background of, of the mundane things that make up our world. And so Andy sent uh, an email to me and a buddy saying that we should answer that book with another, which we call The Maintainers, How a Groups of Bureaucrats, Standard Engineers, and Introverts Created Technologies That Kind of Work Most of the Time. <laughs> and really, it just kind of took off from there. So um we started, I, you know, I was a blogger at the time and we we're playing with it on Twitter and people love the idea and were encouraging us to go on with it. And then um, in 2016, we held our first conference and our essay, Hail the Maintainers, came out. And then it kind of just went viral. It got picked up by The Guardian, Le Monde and The Atlantic and all these places. Um, and so it was kind of like, you know, I, sometimes I think of us kind of as like stewards of the joke or something like that, or the fellowship of the joke. Cause I think it's, for us, it's been as much about how this idea and joke, like do work for other people. You know, that's what we enjoy hearing about is, is what thoughts other people have w- when they hear about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When I th- 
think of the maintainer, certainly before I read the book, my 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 thoughts were turned to I think a book I was read as a child about like the the night workers or something like that. That you know, when everyone else goes to sleep, this kind of group of people comes out and I don't know, sweeps the streets and and cleans the trash and does all this stuff, and then they disappear into the night just as everyone is waking up. Um, that was my initial impression, and you know, it's not that far from the the the, the often neglected underpaid and underappreciated work that that you highlight in this book. I guess when returning to this idea of maintenance or the maintainers, how would you describe as a as a class or group of people you mentioned introverts, bureaucrats, engineers, what is is how would you describe yeah, the maintainers? It's a really good question and I would parse it two ways. Um in one sense I would say it's people whose uh work, paid or unpaid work, um, contributes to the the preservation of any existing order. So under that definition, uh, the those night workers, I've got to look up that story because <laughs> it looks really great, um, but absolutely makes sense. Um, people who are mechanics, um, people who are nurses, so they're maintaining health. Um, people who are teachers are maintaining uh, education and sociability in children, um, all those uh, vocations, as well as uh, unpaid um, domestic work, um, whether it's parenting or elder care, whatever it might be. Um, so that's one way to parse it out. And you can kind of think, you can go around in your head and look at different professions and, and think about who's doing maintenance work and who's not. Um, and there's some interesting empirical questions there. Um, but the second category is that we're all maintainers. Um, all of us in some aspect of our lives are doing things that sustain ourselves, um, at the very least, <laughs> the, the most selfish among us, um, at least do that. Uh, but then there's also our families, our friends, our households, um, all that sort of stuff, whether it's, uh, you know, cutting the grass or raking the leaves or taking care of food around the house, you know, whatever it might be. Um, so those are the two ways I would, I would parse that. Um, it, and we found that helpful um, in doing that because then people can identify with it more readily. You know, there, there's not – the maintainers aren't just a group of people who are rendered invisible, who sneak out in the night and, and make our world livable. They're, it's all of us. It's right. really all of us. Yeah, and on that theme of it's all of us, you speak about you know we're we're, we're maintaining uh, our own bodies all the time. You know, every every toothbrushing and shower is kind of a fight against uh, you know the, the the forces of entropy. You actually use that that line quite a lot. It's the the fight against entropy. Can you dig into that uh, phrase a little bit? What what do you mean by you know ma- maintenance is the this kind of war against entropy? I feel like this uh, came from our buddy Dan Holbrook, who's. Uh uh, professor at Marshall. Um, and he, uh, he did a paper at, I feel like it was maintainers one, Andy, correct me if I'm wrong. That was on wiping and the history of wiping in industrial comp contexts. And yeah, I mean, I think it, it was just like, he was looking at videos and all these kinds of, uh, historical documents that just showed, you know, basically like cleaning and, and the, all the work that people had to do to keep industrial stuff clean. And then when you think about it, you know, when you just think about like what is going on at the most basic level, it's just that entropy, you know, we know this through physics and just through, you know, philosophically that entropy is at work constantly 
everything's falling apart, you know, and at some point our bodies will fall apart too. And so, you know, nothing stays in good working order without intervention. Um, and I think at the most basic level, it's important to remember that, that this is kind of the process that humans are like trying to fight the processes of entropy so that their, you know, their places are livable and usable and, you know, and can keep functioning. Matthew, your, your listeners might appreciate the title of Dan's paper, which was Discipline and Polish. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Um, <laughs> that's great. I, um, it, you have an example of the book. There's an anecdote of maybe it's a friend of yours, some, 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 uh, some person you profile who took a trip to Italy and saw the level of care and attention that the, uh, I guess, some workers were putting into maintaining some public infrastructure. And at first they were tempted to laugh it off because it seemed they were working very slowly and taking so much uh, attention to move some amount of rock. Uh, And it seemed all quite, I don't know, primitive in a way in its technology, whereas in the United States, they had more sophisticated technologies. But they came around to this idea that, you know, these Italian uh, buildings had been around for hundreds of years. This one rock, you know, could have easily been there for 2,000 years and, and gained some, it seemed like that these uh, Italians or maybe Europeans more broadly had some sort of more respect for, you know, systems that are, or, or buildings or um, infrastructure that was built to last Whereas in the United States, we, I don't know, have a culture of that, that tends more towards the disposable or the new. Is there a uh, transatlantic divide here? Is, it, uh, is this an American phenomenon, this you know, neglect uh, of, of maintenance, or, or what's happening there culturally? A couple days ago, we did an Ask Me Anything segment on Reddit when someone was really pushing us on the point of, um, aren't you just criticizing capitalism? Um, and to what extent is this an American thing or not? And, um, it's an interesting question and I'm not sure we have a real answer other than to say we're, we're not comfortable, um, identifying this solely as an American affliction. Um, because we see examples all over the world, whether it's um, in Brazil uh, or in in the Netherlands, um, you know, we we give them a lot of credit in the book, and it's credit that they deserve for their water management. Um, but even even the Dutch have fallen down a little bit, um, and there's been a recent example of a canal collapse in Amsterdam. There's a lot of deferred maintenance there. Um, so I'm not sure I could get on board with a simple uh, transatlantic explanation, but I think what the um, example that you were describing about the stones in Italy draws out is the point about long-term thinking. And I do think it's truer in the U.S. than in other places that we're not so good at long-term thinking um, for a variety of reasons. But um, I think that's definitely something worth highlighting. And and we play it up quite a bit in our book um, on individual levels as well as societal levels. But I know Lee has thoughts on this too. Yeah, I mean, I think I, I agree with what you you just said. I was just thinking that um, Andy, we have a buddy, Phil Scranton, the historian of business and technology, uh, who sends us selected uh, documents. He's find he's literally looking at business all over the globe right now, and has been looking at Eastern Europe recently. And I can't remember where it was. It might have been in Poland in like the fifties and sixties, and uh, you know there, there were the, the 
I think it was, we'll just say the Polish people were resisting what they saw as the Americanization of housing, where the Americans built houses to last like 20 years. And this was like, like just completely opposite of the culture, which was when you built a building, you built it to last. So I think there's some pretty deep uh, cultural uh, things going on here that might have to do with like capitalism and cheapness of uh, resources and products and these kinds of things. Uh, But I don't think we have a really great, uh, feel for how far it reaches yet. Yeah, that's interesting. I, I I see the temptation to resist, you know, breaking bringing everything down to the pathology of capitalism or America because that that feels a bit too easy. Uh, and I appreciate the will to uh, to to kind of resist that, even though uh, there are definitely like different cross cultural um, forces at play. I'm wondering if you could say a little bit about. Um, just the economic toll that deferred maintenance can take. Um, you have examples about the subway metro system in Washington and New York and how much housing repair costs and fixing trains. Those are just some examples that come to mind. I don't know if you have favorite examples or go to examples of just how costly it can be when systems go unmaintained for a long time. Yeah, I mean, you know, like the the big metro systems, subway systems, you're talking about like billions of dollars of deferred maintenance. Um, and then at the national level, you know, I've seen estimates from the, like the American society of civil engineers that we're really talking about like trillions of dollars of deferred infrastructure maintenance, uh, at that level. There's a, I, there is an example that I like to use to kind of, um, kind of show people, uh, you know, how this there's economic costs that aren't just about the cost of maintenance, but bad maintenance leads to other kinds of economic costs, Right. which, which is that like, if we think about, uh, productivity gains over the last 200 years or whatever, it's really about adopting new technologies and ways of doing things that will increase output and allow us to do things faster and easier. Well, you know, if you think about the railroad system is a great example that's, you know, we've had gotten huge benefits from from rail and being able to move things around cheaply, you know, including things we bring in from China or whatever at this point. But, you know, there are parts of the, the railroad system where we actually have to drive slower over the rails than they're designed than they were originally designed for right just because we've taken such bad examples of them so i mean this is the kind of example and i think we could look at many other places in industry and you know infrastructure where this is true where you know you can you can introduce a technology that will get you give you a benefit but if you don't take care of it adequately adequately you actually lose some of that game right so you can actually lose growth um, and I think that's a that's a pretty important point. Yeah, I mean, it was fairly stark and somewhat disturbing with some of these examples just to see the toll of deferred maintenance, right? And I was even driving uh, home this morning and looking around me, you know, I start to notice, I don't know if this is an affliction that you guys have felt doing this research over the past five years, but you kind of start to see it everywhere. Once you start to look at the world through the lens of, you know, maintenance, 
you see the signs that are crumbling and the piece parts of the road and the potholes that are unfilled and the, I don't know, restaurants that need painting and, and all of just the little things that we let slip through the cracks, not to mention the cleaning of one's own bedroom <laughs> that you can easily succumb to the forces of entropy if left unmatched. Do you feel like part of your goal here is to, to kind of help people put on a new set of spectacles and see the world uh, through kind of the, the eyes of, of maintenance and the maintainers in that way? Yeah, that's a really nice way to put it. Um, it it's great if people, if people do that and you're right, we've both been afflicted um, with the same <laughs> goggles over the past few years. And these are choices, you know, um, things do fall apart naturally. That's, that's entropy. Uh, but in the situations that you're describing, um, people are making choices not to keep things up. And, and that's, that's pretty important because what we want at the end of the day is to write a book that makes people reconsider those choices and the costs of those choices. So if it's a city not taking care of a pothole, it's individual drivers who have to fix their suspension or flat tire, you know, so it, it, it distributes those costs. And I think people who are in a position to, um, to do something about that, have, have some obligation to do that. Um, not only because it's the right thing to do, but because it can help other people. One thing that I really, really shocked me to learn is that one of the biggest barriers to the ado- widespread adoption of self-driving cars is not, you know, powerful enough visual recognition AI systems, but just terrible roads. And if, you know, if the roads, if the roads were flat and the signs were well-maintained, we'd have self-driving cars on the roads. But the, the mere fact that, you know, society, uh, that, that, that so many of our cities have allowed this infrastructure to crumble makes it basically impossible for any, you know, any computer to be able to analyze what's going on when a stop sign, you know, has graffiti on it and, and roads haven't been, uh, haven't been paved in decades or that kind of thing, which I think, probably fits into this this argument that we are you know it, it's it's this nice contrast of this this new innovation you know the self-driving car is kind of this you know profound dream of of silicon valley whereas the problem probably most in need of solving is just uh cracks in the road right yeah i mean that's a beautiful example i actually have friends who are professors who work on transportation issues and you know they're kind of lukewarm on self-driving cars we're like i don't know if you know they're so great but you know the one thing is that you know this is what they tell me they're like the one thing is that if we really wanted them to work we'd have to like massively like up you know like repair and maintain the road so like it would be a huge benefit from that direction yeah we get the same um feeling when we hear about Elon Musk and his um, whatever he's calling his version of subways, um, you know, let's say you can build those and let's say that they work. And this kind of goes to your, your first question, Matthew, um, they'll need to be maintained. So an innovation that's not maintained is is just garbage. It's a failure. So it's, you know, even the new stuff, the fantasy stuff with no maintenance plan is destined to fail. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I want to uh, draw our attention now to the digital realm. We've been talking a lot about uh, physical technologies, roads and buildings and subway systems and railways. But I think one really underappreciated realm uh, where an immense amount of maintenance work goes on uh, is in is in the realm of digital technology itself. Um, just, just speaking from personal experience, I know that I have friends who are 
data scientists. The word scientist there is maybe a bit of a misnomer. Data, data maintainer, data code janitor is probably a more effective type of title, right? These are custodians of grids of numbers, essentially. Um, uh, there are people who are required to, you know, every time you flag, I don't know, inappropriate content on a website, a human being has to be on the other end of that, uh, keeping that, you know, dredging through the the worst of our comment sections, making sure everything is maintained in some way. Even the physical infrastructure of the internet um, must be maintained. And that was something that I really started thinking about in the in, in, in the pandemic, because it seemed that, you know, in March, when most of uh, at least the world around me in Toronto shut down, the Internet was remaining afloat. And I was thinking, well, how is this possible if everyone is at home that the that the Internet is 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 still is still chugging along? And it well, it made me realize it made me really appreciate the people who are responsible for the maintenance of the the servers and the, the wires and the undersea cables that that make all of this possible. Um I don't know if I have a question at the end of this as much as uh, expressing my appreciation for you for drawing drawing the attention to this, or if there's anything I've missed uh, in in the digital realm where where maintenance still is paramount, but it's even probably harder to see because you know we, we we're not driving over the cracked pavement roads uh, when we use the internet. I do think there's something about um, maintenance in in the digital realm that. Um, that really bears drawing out a little bit more, which is to say that it's the perceptions that we get um, about, you know, all the stuff we were talking about in the first uh, part of the interview about innovation in Silicon Valley and the flashiness of all that. Um, anybody who knows anything in that world knows that profitability doesn't come from the flashiness. If a company actually wants to make profit over the long term, it comes from reliability and maintenance. Um, and uptime. So companies like Netflix um, and Amazon and Oracle um, and your internet service providers um, and, and the hardware providers for that matter, like Apple or Dell or, or Lenovo or whomever, um, their mm-hmm. reputation and their their money comes from uh, working, <laughs> you know, and, and staying working. But but the public image is something different. It's of uh, you know Steve Jobs on stage in his turtleneck or uh, flashy new features or or whatever it might be. And so um, they're they're playing a, a funny game there. Um, these digital companies because they're making money on the one hand, but projecting an image on the other hand that doesn't really align with the truth in in their companies. One example that that makes me think of is in artificial intelligence. So many AI systems rely on labeled images of the things that they are trying to do. So if it's a system that recognizes images of dogs, you need to feed it many images of dogs labeled. Um, And human beings have to do that labeling, of course. So there are services like Amazon Mechanical Turk or companies that will hire, um, you know, very low wage labor um, in, you know, in other countries that are not the countries that deploy the technology, um, to, to do this labeling work. And it, you know, something like 80 to 90% of all the work that goes into any AI project is in the data labeling, the data maintenance, the code janitoring. And then finally, the last, you know, 10 to 15% is quote unquote, the AI, the part that Elon Musk or Steve Jobs or, um, Mark Zuckerberg would would recognize as or that we would recognize the work as those people's companies do, you know, in in AI. But the rest of it is kind of that that unseen maintenance work. That was just one other example that I thought of in the uh, in the digital realm. 
So yes, it's kind of backwards in, in what we think, you know, a lot of these companies are, are actually doing. Um, maybe we can speak a bit about the status of the social status of the, you know, maintainers. Obviously the, the innovators, the inventors get a lot of clout, a lot of money, a lot of credit. Um, can you say a little bit about, yeah, the, the, the maintainers, their role in society, uh, in terms of, uh, as a, economically, as a matter of class, um, why have we decided that the people most necessary for the maintenance of our crucial technologies are not, you know, appropriately compensated, uh, economically or in status in, in the way we live? Yeah. So, I mean, it, it, there's a little bit of a paradox, like you say, because it's the it's the people who um, really keep things going. It, and on the one hand, um, in some areas, they are well compensated, um, you know, whether it's some uh, advanced tradesmen or I'm sure that the the vice presidents for operations and logistics at, at some large companies are well compensated. Um, but for the most part, I think as we've seen, especially in the pandemic, the quote unquote essential workers um, are, are not well compensated. Um, there's data that, that we talk about in the book that comes by way of United Way's Alice Project um, that shows that some huge percentage of uh, American households don't make enough to to make ends meet in what Alice calls a basic household budget. I think it's at least 40% um, off the top of my head. And many of the people who are full-time workers uh, in in that group are working in the jobs that we would describe as maintenance jobs, uh, to your earlier question. So, you know, part of the, why is that the case um, is is the real question and how can this be? And, and part of it is just good old fashioned, um, uh, snobbery um, and, and status right. politics um, that's not unique to the United States. Mm-hmm. You know, it, um, it's actually more pernicious in other parts of the world in, in the form of um, caste structures. Mm-hmm. Um, America supposedly has a lot more class mobility, even though I think a lot of the people we call maintainers wouldn't, <laughs> wouldn't, wouldn't say that mm-hmm. that's true. Um, and it goes all the way from compensation, um, for, for people who, like I said, now are heroes as, as essential workers, but in normal times are just ignored, um, to, uh, you know, during their careers to what we teach children about, uh, what's important in those roles. Um, and, and your, your story about the book, Matthew was right on point. You know, it's, it's someone who's basically invisible, you know, get out of my way, do your job, get out of my way. I don't want to have to think about you. Um, and so it shows up in status and it shows up in compensation. No, I, I think the only, you know, the only thing I would add is that we know from, you know, studies in social science going way back to the twenties that status hierarchies are real. Um, and that, you know, when people just rank jobs, maintainers jobs tend to fall to the bottom, um, you know, and I think it's, you know, we're taught by our parents and teachers and everyone else we interact with in our culture where jobs fit in the kind of ladder of, of statuses, you know. So, I mean, that's a really when you think about that, that's a really deep cultural structure. And, you know, it's part of what we're trying to do in the book is just highlight it and say, you know, we, we should look at the world in a different way. And kind of put more value on these maintenance roles, but it's a very, very deep structure, an old structure. 
And it's no coincidence, um, we should add, again, as we put out in the book, that the people who bear the brunt of this um, injustice are the people who um, have historically been discriminated against, whether it's um, ethnic and racial minorities um, or women or the cross-section of both. Um, those, uh, you know, those populations really suffer from, um, the, the status and compensation issues that we're talking about. Right. And in particular, I mean, you have a good section when you, when you speak about, um, the maintenance, uh, in, in the home as well, right? This is not just about jobs, uh, you know, paid, paid jobs, but equally about a lot of unpaid labor that goes, uh, very much unacknowledged too. Yeah. And, you know, we know from studies, I mean, this is very well known, but studies of uh, homework that it falls, you know, it falls on women's shoulders much more than men. And, you know, and, uh, you know, caring for elders and children and all that kind of maintenance and care work is mostly done by women, too. So there's definitely inequalities when it comes to these issues. Right. One thing that really struck me uh, is when you were speaking about um, philanthropic and ed ed tech educational technology investment into schools um, and that very little of this investment goes into (laughs) maintenance work. Right. It's all about how can we get the new flashiest, I don't know, laptops or technologies or, I don't know, systems of education or the new curriculum. And very rarely is it about, okay, are the pipes working um, and is the water clean and do the lockers work and are the floors flat, you know? Uh, Are the floors straight and is the seesaw, you know, is the teeter-totter safe? Um, uh, Which which leads me to um, think about both myself and a lot of my colleagues. I work, I mean, I I work in academia as as a history of science instructor, but I also work in slash adjacent to uh, the tech industry where I know many people who are um, very hardworking, interested in questions of engineering, using technology to improve human well-being. These aren't necessarily people, you know, these aren't uh, profit-hungry people who want to exploit anyone, but they are uh, attracted to the idea of using technology, in particular digital technology, to to improve people's lives and might be hard to reach through this argument of, well, the best thing you could do for, you know, schools uh, is is nothing to do with a tablet, but everything to do with, you know, the the screws and nails on the desks or the the physical uh, state of the textbooks. I'm wondering um, where that, where does that balance lie for you? What is, you know, where, where, what is the optimal um, kind of balance to strike between thinking about innovation, thinking about uh, the future technology that we might build on the one hand, uh, and on the other, you know, um, keeping up to speed, up to date, up to working condition, the technology we already do have. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, it's easy to make fun of ed tech because there's so many, it's like a long history of failures in in some respects, you know. I, I, you know, I ended a talk at an ed tech conference uh, with a picture of like e-waste just piled high. And I was just like, this is, this is the history of ed tech here in a photo. Um, but I'm not like, you know, I, I'm a, I am among other things, these COVID days, a homeschool teacher and I use ed tech with my children. I use, um, a math pro game called Dreambox with them. And I use Khan Academy, the Khan Academy app with my kids. And I think ed tech's great in, you know, in, in its context. Uh, I don't think it's a fix all. I think you still need really great teachers, uh, working one-on-one with children and such, but you know, there's something to it, but I think that, that, you know, our spin on this question would be, okay, it's true that, you know, um, 
the American Society of Civil Engineers gives uh, American schools like a D or a D plus, okay, in terms of, uh, you know, infra- their infrastructure report card. And a lot of that has to do with crumbling physical infrastructure. It's not about tablets yet. And yet, I think when we look at the history of ed tech systems, um, especially in the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years, and especially even around famous things like one laptop per child, a lot of these programs are specifically falling down because of maintenance, right? Like they're not, they don't know how to maintain these tablets and they don't have good maintenance projects. And and God, you know, you are handing these things to children for Christ's sake, right? Uh, Who do all kinds of things like pour soda into them or whatever. Um, And so I think it's about, you know, even if you want to focus on the new thing, and it's fine to do that, you know, uh, you have to think about how you are going to keep that thing going over the long haul. And I just think, you know, there's so little of that thinking uh, so often in ed tech and other kind of digital spaces. And you see it because, you know, the one laptop per child and other such uh, things really fell down around maintenance. They really hadn't thought through those problems enough. So. I mean that's one angle on the topic. Andy might have other thoughts. Yeah, I I think that's one hundred percent right, and I hope that um, people who are reading our book or hearing about our book are are thinking more seriously about um, designing, not just for the sake of designing, um, but designing to meet um, what what they and others might think of as virtuous um, social ends. And so, if you're helping a child learn and you're making a product that's built to last. Um, I, you know, and if you've done any of that because of the book that we've written, then, then I'd be really happy. I think I'd be happier is, uh, if I heard that people who are voting, um, on their local school budgets or for, um, local or state or, or national political office are voting for people who they think have those values Mm -hmm. in mind better. And so um, I'm not worried about the supply of gadgets coming into my kid's school, but I'm worried about what, what Lee mentioned that the, the American Society of Civil Engineers is worried about. I'm worried about, you know, uh, the, the ceiling caving in or, the, or the, the walkway crumbling and someone tripping on it and getting hurt. Um, that's what people need to realize that is the most important technology in their community. That's that's the message that I hope people get right. out of the book. Yeah, that's wonderful. I'm reminded as you were speaking, we were talking a few minutes ago about about digital technology maintenance. There was a book I read recently by uh, Nadia Egbal who who took a real anthropological lens on uh, open source code and the people responsible for for yeah, basically the maintenance of the vast majority of the software that exists in the world is open source and so anyone can contribute to it, anyone can edit it, but it often falls in the hands of small groups of extraordinarily hardworking and often not at all uh, compensated people to do that uh, maintenance work. Uh, what I love about this book that you've written is that it encompasses everything from that to the roads, to the schools, to our own bodies, our families, our houses, our planet, environmental sustainability. Um, I, I think that the book is interesting because it does not 
explicitly say, you know, uh, here here is what you need to do about it. At the end, you have a call, an invitation to join the community, uh, the maintainers, a, a, a website, a mailing list, and to ask to start asking uh, these these neglected questions as we've been doing in this interview. So I hope that to anyone listening to this 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 conversation, and, and hopefully if you read this book, uh, invites you to start a, a conversation with with the people around you uh, to make sure that this is is top of mind. Because I will say once once you get into the mindset of of the importance of maintenance, it's hard to uh, it's hard to stop. So where should the listeners go if they want more information about you guys? If they want to buy the book? If they want to regularly think about the maintainers? Yeah, the easiest thing to do is go to the maintainers.org. Uh, you need to put the in front of maintainers, or you get somebody else. Uh, and you can sign up for our email listserv there. Um, I'm uh, at sts underscore news on twitter andy's uh at russell uh prof and you know you can also find our emails in various places including on the maintainers list and yeah totally reach out to the community and reach out to us individually we love talking to people about these ideas and and thinking about ways to collaborate and it is a a fun community um and eclectic's the word, um, kind of like what you were getting at, Matthew, because these things touch every imaginable aspect of our lives. Um, <laughs> everything's on the table. So uh, it's just a matter of having a, a fun and respectful conversation um, and trying to um, inspire other people to do the same. Wonderful. Well, thank you so much for speaking with me today. The book is The Innovation Delusion, Lee Vinsel and Andrew Russell. Thank you again. Thanks so much for having us. Thank you.